Hello, Virginia Heffernan here. What you're about to hear is a teaser for today's episode of Trumpcast, which is available in full for Slate Plus members only. See how tempted you are now to sign up for Slate Plus? We've made one in four episodes exclusive to Slate Plus members because they help support the work we do on Trumpcast and help fund other Slate podcasts like Slow Burn and Charged. To sign up and hear this episode and every episode of Trumpcast in full, please visit slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. It's only $35 for the first year. That is Zlotty's a day. And you'll get other benefits like ad-free podcasts and discounted tickets to live Slate events. So sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. And thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I'm going to get some distance from news cycle mania for a minute and say very schematically and just among Trumpcast friends that fascism has two strands. There's the blood and soil strand. That's where the racism lives. Nobody belongs on the land except those who share some invented bond of blood always coded as white landowners. That's blood and soil. And then there's the overman component. I think we're in the thick of this one right now. This is kind of the fancy cerebral part of things, the Nietzschean part, the aesthetic part. This Overman idea gives you the idea that there's slave morality, that certain people are intrinsically are slaves trying to keep the strong down by yammering on about morals, religion, decency, sanity, political correctness, as they call it now. This concept persisted among hippies and druggies, so it's not always a right-wing thing, which makes it especially insidious. You can hear it in the overdressed fascist with the fava beans and Chianti, the Gulf Streams and Maxi Yachts, or the Harvard degree, but also the taste for incest, gang rape, and maybe strangling people. You see traces of this in libertarianism and the obsession with civil liberties that can tilt into depravity, and you see more than traces of of it in someone like Alan Dershowitz, who puts his clients well above not just the nuts and bolts of the law, but well above moral laws, especially the ones that govern sexual and marital violence. Basically, the way civil liberties fetishism tilts into depravity is you're for free expression. So suddenly you're for swastikas and child porn. You're not a prude about sex and drugs, God forbid. So suddenly you're for rape and roofies. Enter Alan Dershowitz's running buddy, Jeffrey Epstein. The latest news in the New York Times is that not only was Epstein evidently trafficking, kidnapping, and enslaving girls as young as 13, but he was cozying up to Harvard scientists and uh, Nobel laureates, who cozied right back, with the plan of starting a master race of Epstein's spawn. Basically raping or otherwise inseminating without consent faceless, nameless girls and women, and the Harvard men around him liked the planes and maybe the girls he kidnapped, but they also liked his overman ideology, which you can also hear about in evolutionary psychology and other pseudosciences in the vein of Jordan Peterson. These are the ideologies meant to tell young incels and other Ayn Rand readers that civilization is castrating them and they should awake the giant within and just go rape everyone. From blood and soil comes the racism. From overman thinking comes the misogyny. Both of these ideologies start as speech with talk of infestation and the restrictions of civilized behavior, now called political correctness. And both of those things lurch into violence and eventually, if we get that far, exterminationism. So look at that. American fascism has both. But we should also remind ourselves that Jeffrey Epstein is in prison right now. So maybe it's not too late to stop it. 
Today to discuss national security, the resignation of Dan Coats, and the possibility of John Ratcliffe as Director of National Intelligence, my guest is Mika Oyang. Mika is Vice President for the National Security Program and Chairperson of the Cyber Enforcement Initiative at Third Way. Mika has a long career on Capitol Hill, most recently serving as Chief of Staff to Representative Anna Eshoo. Prior to that, she was the Defense Policy Advisor to Senator Kennedy, the Subcommittee Staff Director on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. I love talking to Mika. She always sets my brain straight. Mika, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, we have a lot to cover. Another departure from the Trump administration, this time Dan Coates, Director of National Intelligence. I guess he was at odds with Donald Trump, as the New York Times puts it. What a surprise. Things usually go so harmoniously. <laughs> yeah, look, Dan Coates was part of that first generation of like national security grownups who were coming in to reassure everyone that, hey, things are going to continue. We've got real professionals here. Dan Coates had served on the Intelligence Committee. He was a Republican senator and like not a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. And he came in with Mattis and Kelly and McMaster and some of these other folks to sort of say like, look, no, we've got serious people here who are going to keep the nation's security interests in mind. Yeah. And, you know, he did that. He spoke the truth that the intelligence community saw, even when it was at odds with whatever the president seemed to think was going on. And strangely, the president didn't like it. Yes. Yeah. He's one of those normal hair, normal face people. You know, he doesn't he doesn't look like Boris Johnson. He doesn't look like Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't look like Steve Bannon. Right. Yeah. He looked like an adult. And he followed James Clapper, who's been on the show before as DNI. I wonder if he talked to Clapper along the way, because Clapper, who also had that same steady hand on the tiller, it was that same type as Coates, was such an outspoken critic of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to be a critic when you're on the team and inside the tent. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't expect Coates to do that. And frankly, even the people who've left have not said that much about the president in criticism, right? Like Tillerson has sort of made some subtle jabs, but has not come out and just said what he really thinks about the guy mm-hmm. in sort of on the circuit. So I don't expect Coates to do that. But I would imagine that his close friends are getting an earful of like his frustration inside the administration. And, you know, it's a really hard job. I had this conversation with another person who'd been a head of an intelligence agency who said that it's really a hard job because you're on the team, but your job is to give people the facts as they are. Mm -hmm. And you feel this weird tension and pressure, even in a normal administration, to sort of shade it in a way that helps them get to where they want to get to, as opposed to saying, no, actually, this is what it is. And these are what the dangers are. And here's what we don't know. And we're not so sure about this stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that pressure to be objective against the group goals in the moment is really hard. And then you have someone like Trump, who just, as we saw in the Mueller report and other places, just pesters people over and over and over again to try and get the answer that he wants. And then even when you tell him the facts, just goes out there and tweets things that are totally contrary to it. So he's stuck around a surprisingly long time. He got in office in March of 2017. And as you say, he's with he was with the the Kelly and McMaster types who later people would speculate. Well, Kelly came in a bit later, but would speculate were the um, so-called anonymous senior administration officials with their detente and their objection to the president, the in, internal coup. Um, 
I, I don't know. Do you think he was, well, you've already said that you don't think he openly resisted Trump, but do you think he aligned himself with Mattis and Kelly um, to the extent that they, they agreed that Trump was a danger? Uh, I think that he was probably in the camp of people who felt like, Good people have to serve the president no matter what, mm. no matter how abhorrent, because mm-hmm. you know, the government has to function. We can't all just abdicate that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that he was trying to do his best by the job that he had, which is, you know, the way that a normal Republican would have behaved in the job. Mm-hmm. So things like North Korea not actually living up to any of the commitments that Trump thought they had made, mm-hmm. even though, like, mm-hmm. if Trump had actually read any of the agreements, he would know they didn't promise anything. That Iran was trying to abide by the nuclear agreement and was trying to hold the thing together when Trump was saying that they cheated, you know, recognizing Russia as a danger. I think there are a whole bunch of things that the United States has traditionally seen from its adversaries, mm-hmm. that they, these leopards don't really change their spots. And Coates, who had watched that his whole career, was saying, this stuff is still true. Right? Mm-hmm. This is what we know about these things. This is what we've collected. These, this is what the facts are. And would say that publicly in testimony, even when the president was watching and tweeting at him otherwise. Well, one thing I wonder about the people um, making their exits, including a McMaster Tillerson, not all of them are in the, were in the cabinet, but I wonder if we will look back and say, these guys should have made a 25th Amendment move, that they, this is essentially a kind of complicity network. And especially when they back out like a Paul Ryan or like so many of the others who've worked for Trump, you know, Bannon, and say what a disaster he was. They didn't do anything while they were in there to sound that alarm. And, you know, I agree that Coates may just go to his grave like it looks like, you know, Bill Barr is going to do saying, you know, I'm glad I stood in there as a like good patriot and Republican and I did what I could and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything more or less. But I'm just surprised that none of them see this as a kind of call to heroism. And they still may seem like ordinary Germans when we look back. I think the question really is how far does Trump go? And Mm -hmm. he's doing all these things that nobody thinks are okay. Not just the language stuff, but the stuff at the border is just really hard to stomach. And like, I don't know how Kirsten Nielsen could have lived with herself through all of that. Well, she's a perfect example. I mean, and she looks like she's spinning out a little bit in her comments afterward. They've kind of disintegrated in the sense of like lost their integrity. And they really need to somehow stitch themselves back together. We've seen one after another, you know, my favorite being Michael Cohen of just their brains seem to have hit us stop when they realize not just how dangerous and racist the president is, but but how much he's betrayed them. Initial promises to them. I mean, his warmth on hiring some of these people, McMaster and so on, and then getting, let's say, McMaster to serve the letter, the Comey firing letter and to speak in defense of it, and then to turn absolutely on McMaster. Um, He hasn't turned on Coates the same way, but I don't know what that process looks like. And Coates doesn't have a whole lot more time to figure out what his legacy is going to be. But I still think right. it may play as an unusual choice for him to have, have sat by during all that saber rattling with North Korea and baiting China and yeah. and even, you know, working with someone who had colluded in the small C sense, clearly colluded with Russia. 
So one other question I have for you, since you know this world, we've heard lots of conversation about whether Trump should even have exposure to high level classified information or, or, you know, we've had Bandy Lee on this show who says he's incapable of handling it. Obviously, Jared Kushner's security clearance is super sketchy. Um, But sometimes I think that the, the problem is certainly not that Trump is acting on excessive intelligence. Yeah, look, it's a problem in both directions, right? Yeah. He doesn't listen to fact and make decisions based on sort of a factual basis and an understanding of what other parties in the world care about and will do in response. So he, you know, takes policy positions based on some weird sense of his own ego and what Fox News is telling him to do, but like has no bearing on reality. But then on the other hand, for Trump, it's very clear that knowledge and information is currency. And so I think there's a real risk on giving him access to some of the more classified stuff, that he would share that with the wrong people in exchange for favor or access. I mean, you know, we had him blurting out stuff that was, you know, highly classified at press conferences. Mm -hmm. And like, he just doesn't have the sense of respect for or, you know, the information or understanding of the consequences and the gravity of how the information was gathered and what it means if it goes out to the world. He just says stuff. And I think that's very dangerous for the intelligence community because, look, you want an intelligence community that feels like it can share everything with the president of the United States. If they get in the habit of thinking there are certain things that we just can't tell the president and we're just going to do on our own, that is also a recipe for disaster in a democracy. That was our preview. Aren't you compelled to hear more? You can. Just sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus to listen to the full episode and get all our podcasts without ads. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus.